Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have with us a really incredible founder, you know, a founder that he's built, uh, you know, incredible stuff, you know, built, scaled, financed, exited, you name it, you know, all the good stuff that we like to hear. And now, you know, he is building a rocket ship, a rocket ship that I'm actually very excited to be part of as well. And uh, super, super inspired by what the team has done, you know, in the sport, you know, of tennis. Now bring it to your living room. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ori Levy. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for having me. I hope I can live to the expectations now. <laughs> Absolutely. So originally born in Tel Aviv and raised there. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up over there? So uh, I grew up in Israel, the oldest from uh, three boys. Uh, my father was one of the pioneers of market research in Israel. He was uh, affiliated for the Gallup organization, which is based in the U.S. And uh, both of my parents worked in the business for 30-something years until they sold it to the uh, global organization. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that was quite inspiring for you because uh, obviously growing up, seeing the ups and downs, the cycles that you go through as an entrepreneur, how was that for you? Because I'm sure that you also spent some time there in the holidays and in vacations and weekends, you know, seeing them, you know, pushing and, 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 and fighting, you know, to, 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 to make things happen. Yeah, actually, I learned, uh, I learned a lot of lessons. I, uh, I spent most of my free time at, at the office doing all sorts of stuff from uh, typing in questionnaires to uh, doing phone interviews uh, from sitting in meetings. I, I, I love to be to be involved in everything. Uh, I, I remember that almost every holiday or some vacation I used to be in the office and it wasn't just for the money. I mean, I, I really enjoyed learning new things, influencing. Uh, my parents did a lot of work for the Israeli chief scientist office. So I remember seeing a lot of uh, a lot of inventions, a lot of innovations, and uh, I I learned a lot by that. Now your father had a quite a, an influence in you, you know, someone that uh, had the opportunity of of dealing with very high profile politicians, you know, businessmen. I guess how how would you say that he has influenced? your career, your personal life. I'm sure your mom too, but uh, at a business level, you know, having him, you know, and obviously ha having your dad, you know, having that level of, 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 of approach and influence, you know, also in others, you know, with that type of profile, I'm sure that was really powerful for you. Yeah, my father was a, he was a character. He was a great person. He was a great father. He was very smart, very charismatic, full of ideas and vision. We used to say that he used to wake up every every morning with a, with a new idea for a startup, uh, but he wasn't a great executor. So he was big visionary, but he wasn't a great executor. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned is that starting with a great idea is maybe five percent of the journey. But <laughs> you need to have the other ninety five percent executing. So in your case, the army you know, was uh, the next stop, you know, uh, a must there in, in Israel. Uh, I guess, how do you think that 
the discipline that that brings, you know, to to one. You know, what what, what kind of discipline and perspective did the experience of being involved with the army bring to you? Yeah, I mean, the army in, here in Israel it gets us from uh, from uh, uh, from teenagers into men. That that's the that, that's the the journey that we go to. Uh, when in the U.S. you go to college, we have to go to the army. We learn a lot of things. We see a lot of things. Uh, I was in the army during uh, that time of the Intifada, so it, it was. I seen a lot of sights that uh, you're not supposed to see. Um, and it's really get you uh, going up faster, I would say. And I spent the last year in the army not doing too much, and I felt that my brain was brain force. So just following the army while all my friends went into big trips, that's what usually what they do in Israel, following the army, you go and you travel one year in the world. I started learning just straight out of the army. I started doing my, my master's degree. Now, for the master's too, I mean, it was a really interesting blend between marketing and finance. So why blending those two? Um, I think it's attracted me the most. I was really into marketing, also because of my uh, background in, in the office. And finance, I needed to touch it because I didn't have a lot of understanding in it. And I, and I was certain that in my future, I will need to have a, a good understanding in numbers. So uh, I majored in this too, which, by the way, proved a lot uh, uh, following that when I started my first company. And when, when you started the first company too, there was really a triggering event there that was a conversation with your father that involved trends. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just as I finished university, I remember that one day my father told me a story that when he was in UCLA, there was a guy that used to uh, predict trends based on how, based on measuring how many inches they got in the press. So we used to follow a lot of fields, measure how much inches that were written about them, and that's how we predicted trends. And now, when I started the company, it was 2000. I said, everything now is becoming di digital. It was the, the, the dot-com it, it dot period. Everything became digital. And uh, we can do it in an automated way. And, but not only that, I also wanted to measure word of mouth because back then uh, uh, it wasn't social media yet. It was uh, mainly discussion boards and chats. So I could measure the influence the press hand of, uh, has on word of mouth and what affects what and what pushes what. So I wanted to measure both. Um, so I started a company called Trendum. It was February uh, 2000. It was perfect timing because a month later the bubble burst and the dot-com bubble. And uh, I'm not sure uh, everybody knows, but uh, uh, the Nasdaq went, I mean, before the dot-com, the Nasdaq gained 800%. And then in the two years following March 20, it fell 78%. Wow. So um, it was another great lesson because companies forgot that at the end of the day, they need to make money and they need to be profitable. And when I started random, it was impossible to raise money. Just impossible. But I wasn't really discouraged by that. I was very young and persistent. 
and uh, I was bootstrapping my way on executing uh, uh, my vision. And how were you guys making money with Trendum? What was the business model there? Yeah, so at the beginning, I actually sold research works to just to finance the company. So I remember, for example, I did a project for uh, Teen People, the magazine. Uh, it was actually my, my, my first client. And uh, I measured the, uh, the buzz for women singers in the discussion forums and, and bulletin boards. And what we discovered is that actually back then, Britney Spears was gaining a lot of negative momentum. And I showed them the results and they were shocked, 10 people. I mean, the, you know, it's their business. Uh, there was a big article back then, and they uh, they became uh, my first client, team people. I also remember a story when I did work for HBO on the series The, the Wire, we just aired back then, and um, we analyzed the buzz for that series. And uh, I, I fly to New York, there are 20 people sitting in the room, and I gave them the results of what we see. People love that series. Uh, I, I remember they complained a bit about the, the vocabulary because it was very, very uh, uh, harsh vocabulary, I would say. And then following that meeting, they asked me, what do I think about the series? <laughs> I told them, I never watched it because we don't have HBO in Israel back then. <laughs> And they were in complete shock because you know I just spent an hour telling them about the series that I never saw. And they became our second client. And so, you know, that's how we started. And then how do you end up raising money? Because uh, obviously not an easy feat. You know, you are in Israel. Uh, you're now traveling back and forth to New York. You're bootstrapping the company. How do you end up raising money here? So the first money I ever raised was uh, when I used to fly to New York and, and, and do those presentations, I took friends with me to, to the room. So because, you know, I'm 24, 25 years old, uh, I can get nervous. I can sometimes forget uh, words in English. I hope it won't happen in this uh, podcast. <laughs> and so I, I took one of my uh, father friends called Yitzhak Fischer, which is, a, a, he was a big entrepreneur. And I take him to this meeting and the, uh, the head of research for the company walks up and do, does the introduction to his team and said, this is Ori Levy from Israel. And he has one of the uh, biggest invention I've seen in 20 years. And I looked at Yitzhak and Yitzhak goes, wow, I never seen that opening. And when we left that meeting, he says, how much do you need? $200,000, I mean, and he became my first investor and, and, and my mentor also. I learned a lot from him. And uh, then we started growing up a bit. And I really approached raising money in 2005. I already had 12 paying customers, including, as I mentioned, 10 people, HBO. We also have CNN a lot of the ST Louder brands, and the company was breaking even. I had eight employees, and we, we were breaking even. And when I start meeting VCs, they looked at me like I'm a ghost because they, they were not used to companies that are making money so early on and that are breaking even. 
So uh, I was offered all sorts of deals from the top VCs in the world. But uh, one day Yitzhak calls me and says, on the way to Palo Alto, stop in New York for a meeting with Nielsen. I said, okay. The next day we sit in the room and the CEO of Nielsen walks in the room and I tell him the random story for half an hour. He walks up, he says, okay, I have another meeting to attend, and he's giving his uh, CFO do the deal with him after 30 minutes. So we ended up going with uh, Nielsen, and wow. we raised $6 million. And then, obviously, you know, that triggered a really nice, um, you know, unfolding events that happen as a result of that, because when you raise money from someone like that, you know, such a large corporation, you know, that has the, the level of, of, of recognition like Nielsen, I'm sure that that sends some really positive signaling to the market. And as a result of that, you started getting calls. And one of them, you know, ended up really triggering M&A action. So, so walk us through what happened there, you know, that phone call that you received and what happened after. Yeah. So when I started Trendom, I was completely alone in the industry of measuring bus. But by the time we did the Nielsen deal, there was several companies in the space. So when we announced the deal, just actually literally the same day we announced the deal in the newspaper, I get a call from the CEO of a company called Buzzmetrics in New York. His name is Jonathan Carson, which is a close friend today. And uh, he, he said, you know, congratulations, what an amazing deal for you. You know, let's sit for coffee. We never met. Let's uh, sit for coffee. We sit for coffee the next day. And then uh, three months later, we did uh, we did an acquisition, an M&A with, with Buzzmetrics. And um, instead of using the money I raised for Nielsen to start a U.S. operation, we got a, a, a brand new start which uh, much faster, um, instant presence, they had great team with multiple talents, and we shortened our time to market. When we announced the Buzzmetrics deal, we got another call from another company that actually was bigger than both of us from Cincinnati called the IntelliC, and three months later, we bought them as well. So we ended up doing a, a three-way merger. And how difficult is that? Because at this point, you're getting like three companies together, three different cultures, three different teams. You know, how, how was that integration like? That was challenging. MNAs are always challenging. This was very challenging because we had a company in Israel with our difficulties. We had a company in New York, in Telesic, in Cincinnati. I mean, just the difference between Cincinnati and New York is I can write a story about that. But also the founders of Intelisic were Indian. So a lot of mentality clashes, but, you know, I think when you have good people that share the same passion, you find, you find the path to success. And eventually we ended up building a beautiful business. And in 2007, Nielsen bought the, the entire company. So walk us through that, because that uh, was a smashing outcome north of 100 million of a deal. So walk us through how the transaction with Nielsen, you know, happened. Make, make, make us insiders of that deal. <laughs> Actually, it's, a, it's an interesting story because uh, we, we ended up doing that deal just before the another bubble burst. And before we did the Nielsen deal, we actually had two or three offers to do an IPO. I still remember the book from Lehman Brothers 
that says 400 million dollar valuation on the cover. But I remember we sat in a board meeting and Itzik said, you know, we have all these books, but it's, it's, it's uh, air in a bubble. It's going to burst. And I don't want to jump over my heels. But when Nielsen saw that we got those offers, obviously they had other interests in the company, they decided to buy it eventually. How was that for you? Um, it was, you know, uh, I, I actually, you know, I, I grew up not missing much. So I wasn't uh, really going from poor to rich, I would say. But um, uh, in a humble way, I would say that I wasn't really surprised. You know, I, I throughout the history of Trendom, I used to exercise shares when I could. Because, you know, you're always bullish on the company, but as a young kid, you know, you, you want to get some money out so you can, you know, buy an apartment. I wanted to get married. So they were, I was lucky enough that they gave me the opportunity to do so. And um, when the deal was done, it was fun, but, you know, we continued. Now, talking about continuing, I mean, first company, first smashing outcome. So uh, unbelievable. But hey. You know, like uh, you go from things unfolding the right way to things not unfolding the way that you had hoped for with the next company that you joined. So that you started obviously investing in startups and then you joined this marketplace in fashion and everything that went well before didn't go so well the second time around. So I guess there's this saying that is you either succeed or you learn. So now, you know, where you're going from success to all of a sudden, you know, this, 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 this catastrophic event, you know, that you haven't hoped for, you know, unfolding in front of your eyes. How humbling was that for you? And what, what lesson did you take from that? Yeah, so my next experience with Sense of Fashion, which was a marketplace for fashion, um, all the things that went well in, in Trendom, for example, nine of my first 10 employees remained employees in the company until we exited. Nine out of ten. My first ten employees in Sense of Fashion, I was left with only one or two eventually after two years. Because we, you know, things evolve, you don't make the right decisions. I bet a lot of money on a, on a team in the US that wasn't very successful, and that cost a lot. I mean, much more than it cost in Israel. And uh, we also made some uh, wrong turns in terms of strategy. And uh, things didn't evolve the way we hoped for. And I remember that towards the end of the company, there was a merger offer on the table with another company that does not similar stuff, but they had an interesting concept. And I remember talking to my investors about this company and this CEO that uh, I thought we should merge with. And from the beginning, I told the other CEO that um, if we do this merger, we are bringing an external CEO to manage the entire operation. Because I wanted to take the ego out of the question. So neither I or him will manage the company because I thought that he wasn't very successful. And I even remember uh, uh, raising money for that operation from my current investors, from new investors. They were willing to invest in the company. 
and I did this road trip with him for two weeks. And following that, I realized that he wasn't the right man for the job. And when I started talking to him, who, sh- who are we picking for that role? He said, I will be the CEO. I told him, we agreed that you are stepping out. I'm stepping out as well. Then he says, no, I'm sh- I should be the CEO. And I said, okay, then we don't have a deal. And I, I closed the company. I mean, I, I didn't want to waste more money for my investor, and I decided to close the company. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, obviously, you know, here, many, many lessons, you know, that you took away from you, I mean, with you from that journey. And then as, as, as the next one, you know, part of this investment and, and involvement with companies, then you get involved with this other company called Pombom. And it was more like at the chairman level. And they're basically, you know, like what you were able to do was to help this company in ramping up. You know, in fact, they're going to be uh, doing an IPO. They did the IPO there in Israel. The IPO is coming soon to NASDAQ with 123 million valuation. I guess as part of Pombon, first, what was the company? What is the company doing? And then two, walk us through what makes a board effective? Because here you were the chairman. So obviously board dynamics and what makes a board effective. Yeah, so first of all, Pomvon does uh, photos and media distribution from theme parks and, and events. We are now probably just the largest company in the space, working with uh, with Merlin, Warner Brothers, Six Flags, all the major companies in the industry. And I joined as a chairman just a month after the they, they started the company, the CEO and the CTO. I joined as an investor and active chairman and actually spent 50% of my time in with Pomvom. Uh, I was very active. And um, I think Pomvom's story, which was they had great technology, but that market is very, very hard to penetrate because there are 
the tenders go probably every three to five years and there is a you know there's a bidding and there are several companies in the industry and for a small company from Israel great technology as it is but we, we didn't have the personal relationships to win those tenders so uh, it was very difficult for us to penetrate the market and we had um, a big investment offer on the table just before covid started from a company in in, in Switzerland and when covid started i get a phone call from the cfo we were supposed to sign the deal the next day and he tells me listen owen sorry but you know it's freeze we, everybody now we, we, we freeze the entire operation i literally had to pay money for my own bank account to the employees back then and then a month later in into covid i get a call from the ceo tells me the largest company in the space just went back to into administration i told him great news we are going to buy them and he says to me you are hallucinating you know we don't have money to pay salary you want to buy this company out of administration i said yes now we have a story that company did the year before 100 million dollars in sales and we bought it out of administration it, a month later we raised 5 million dollars we bought that company from administration and build the entire business once now you have clients you have technology and we just need to put the puzzle back into pieces uh, until the ipo in 2001 my god you know talking about conviction eh you know obviously the uh, the the ipo there 2021 you know was uh, really people tell year for you too because that was really what pushed you into shifting gears towards really bringing to life you know a really exciting company called Strico and definitely one thing that happened there in 2021 was you crossing paths with Yoni Willand so how do you guys cross path how are you able to really have the exposure to what Yoni you know had in mind and, and what he was working on and and how do you really decide hey i think that this is this is my next chapter yeah so In 2018 I moved to a new house in Ramat Hasharon in Israel literally 100 yards from the country club with several tennis courts and there is a great tennis coach that we went to uh, my my kid went to a kindergarten with him and he says oh let's come come play some ball so you know I started playing tennis and I grew up playing soccer most of the time I never really played tennis and i started practicing with him and i became totally obsessed with the sport it's an individual sport it's completely different from anything that i knew the mental toughness it's different the athleticism concentration it's a, it's a whole new ball game and at the end of the day you are yourself standing on the court there is no one else to blame i love that it's a wonderful feeling so i started practicing and i started playing matches and more than i love winning i hate losing i so i became obsessed with the game i started watching youtube videos slow motion videos i registered to different websites but now it's even more frustrating because you watch a lesson online on youtube and you want to practice it but you can only do it on court 
So it's, it's, it's frustrating. Sometimes the court is not available, but now it's raining. Uh, you need to drive there. It's, it's frustrating. And uh, 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 by the time you get to court, you forget what you saw. And also, you never see yourself hitting the ball. You now you're on court. You won't open the phone and watch the YouTube uh, video. It's a very flat learning curve. It, it takes a lot of time to get better. I started looking for training aids, training aids, and honestly, the variety of the training aids is very limited. You realize that the best thing out there is an elastic rope that ties to a ball on one side and to a water tank on the other. I mean, it has been like this for 40 years. The best-selling product on Amazon is a ball connected to a rubble pole. That's it. I mean, it, it, I realized that the tennis world is thriving for, for innovation. And one day, out of the blue, I get a call from a friend urging me to meet someone he knows from down, Yoni Willen. Yoni is a tennis veteran, over 20 years of experience. He's playing tennis. He's teaching tennis. He owns one of the largest tennis academies in Israel. Over 500 players, but most importantly, he has a real passion for the game and a deep understanding of the game. So my, my curiosity picked. I invite Yoni to come and meet me. And he shares me this fantastic vision on, on tennis, how he wants to transform the, ga- the game, how he thinks we should practice better with this tennis simulator that he, he, he envisioned and uh, uh, how people will be able to play together regardless of their location, their skill level. Everybody can engage in playing tennis, right? From the comfort of the home. And uh, I told Yoni, let me think about it. I thought about it for 24 hours. I give him a call and tell him, Yoni, I'm in. That's it. I'm leaving everything else that I'm doing and I want to dedicate my time with you and bring this vision to life. And that's how we started Spyco. This, this, is, this is really exciting too. I mean, obviously, not an easy play, you know, from what you were used to and what you had seen, because obviously in this case, you have the software and the hardware coming together. So, and I know that you guys have been very much under wraps, you know, and low ra- under the radar up until, you know, now. But how did you guys go about, you know, really putting thought into how this would shape up and, and make sure that that software and that hardware came together in the best way possible from 2021 all the way up until now? Because I know that now you guys are even working on the next version. You guys have done different iterations. So what do you think has taken you to really be like, okay, I think that we are now ready to unwrap this thing and let the world know about Strico? Yeah, I think one of the breakthroughs that we had is... Uh, uh, Three or four months ago, we did a road trip to the U.S. with a prototype that we had, Yoni and myself, and we visited several academies in the in New York area. And when we showed it to people, they went crazy. I mean, I, I, I literally got offers to buy the prototype as it as is, and I told them I, I can't sell it to you because I, I want to find something else to to show to demonstrate. So I think that's where we learned that what was burning inside us now is ready for prime time and 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 the reaction that we get i mean the reaction that people tell us it's it's amazing it's it's amazing we have two programmers in the company that never touched a racket in their life they started playing tennis when we started Strico. 
And now, on court, they are winning matches. They are playing, we are playing, they are winning matches. They never touch a record. All they did was playing with Stryker. I'm playing for 15 minutes almost every day in Stryker, and my tennis level improved exponentially. So how is Stryker? Like, for the people that are listening, describe Stryker. What is Stryker? What does the machine, the experience look like? So Stryker is a tennis simulator that is composed from a, a, a tennis device that is connected to a TV. I mean, think of a peloton for tennis. It holds a, a real tennis ball that you hit with your own racket, but you really hit the ball the same way you would hit it on court. It's not VR. It's not a Wii controller. You actually and literally hit the ball with your own racket. Inside the ball, we have sensors. They measure the direction, speed, and spin of your shot. And that's why we know where the shot is landing. On the device, we also have a built-in camera. We use computer vision and AI to track your movement in the room and to see and understand your technique. And once you hit the ball in the real world with your own racket, the ball flies to the virtual world on the screen where you can learn how to play, practice, and compete against other players worldwide. Worldwide. We are also developing the world's first AI tennis coach using the camera just like that mentioned. <clears throat> the system learns your technique and can give you guidance on how to improve your shots and create tailor-made tennis program. Because one of the most important assets that we have is real-time feedback. We analyze how you hit different shots, and we know where the ball is going. So that's a closed loop. We know in what percentage you hit the ball, and the system can guide you on how to improve them. You can think about that as the largest and biggest tennis ball, tennis club worldwide. You can compete against other players 24-7, become a champion, gain points. There will be a ranking system where you can see how you rank against your friends, against other players in the world, we are going to change the game. Now, typically when you are an entrepreneur, you know, building something so exciting like this, you want to let the world know about it. You know, I, I, it's really remarkable that you guys have been able to contain yourselves, not, not, to, not to tell anyone. I mean, you, you don't even have a website. You know, it's so hard to even come across, you know, some of the videos that you guys have developed around this unless you receive it from you guys. So, so why... Why did you do that? How were you able to really contain yourselves from not like putting it out there on the internet and just like making sure that you had it right, that it was right for market? And, and, and how do you know that you guys are now ready for it? It's, it's a great question because I think that it's a combination. A, we were lucky enough to raise money without exposing the product too much to the market because Usually in companies like us, from what we have learned is that they start showing or showcasing the product two or three years before it's live. And by the time they go to market, people are already, I would say, let down from it. Uh, we saw a lot of companies that does that. And it starts some sort of a low, slow start. So. Once we were lucky enough to raise enough money and became under the radar, uh, uh, we were able to contain that. And only 
showcase it to the markets when it's ready for prime time and ready for production and that's where we are today because we want to start selling next year now obviously you know for this too you need money to develop this so you guys have raised um, a few million uh, from angels mainly uh, and uh, and as a disclosure you know to the people that are listening and to everything I'm involved you know also as an investor technically you know we can say uh, now when you think about investments and you think about investors, you also got to think about vision because it's very important to relate that to people to enroll them into the future that you guys are living into because obviously there's so much that you can do here. I mean, you guys are just starting out. So I guess if I was to give you the opportunity of going to sleep tonight, Ori, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Strico is fully realized, what does that world look like? So it's a, it's a great question. I think that uh, it caters to different needs of different people. So you can wake up, you can do a 15, 20 minutes workout, even workout, sweat a bit before you go to work or instead of riding your bike or doing your treadmill exercise. And then your son comes back from school and now he wants to walk on his cross court, or he wants to play against other friends, maybe even in the same neighborhood or from different areas of the of, of, of his city or from other places in the world. So he does this tournament. When he plays against other people, he wins matches. His confidence can go higher. His self-esteem is not now sitting on the couch playing PlayStation or whatever. So he moves, and then my wife, which is not a great tennis fan, but when I bring the, the, the system home, she loves it. She can also practice a bit. She hates going on court because she's not very successful, but at home she can get better. And now the system can correct her technique and again, build her confidence in, in, in with play. And then when I come home, I can beat everybody and it can be a family event. You know, we can do all sorts of competition in-house, just different sort of competitions. So it's it's a full world of tennis. I, I it's You can think about it as the largest tennis club in the world, I would say. And people really underestimate the um, the impact of tennis because how many, how many people play tennis nowadays? Worldwide, it's about... 100 million that are registered somewhere. So I, I believe that number is probably three times higher because I play. I'm not registered everywhere. I know my friends. Yeah. I talk to people in the US. So I, I guess that number is probably around 300 million or something like that. Same same with me. And I find that the gamification of something like this is going to be so amazing to us. You guys develop this because now you're going to be able to play against your friends, you know, that you are playing probably, you know, in your club or something. And if it's snowing, if it's raining, you know, like doesn't matter. You can still play from your living room, which is absolutely remarkable. Now, let me bring you back in time. I'm going to put you into a time machine because we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to bring you into a time machine back to the moment where you just had that conversation with your dad about trends. And now you were thinking about a world where you could build a company and bring that company to life to really solve and, and cover that gap, that need that you were seeing in the market. 
And let's say you were able to have a sit down with that younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Wow, that's a big question. I think the one of the biggest lessons is per persistence, I think. Never let go. Trust your instincts. I mean, you can listen to other people, but 10 people will tell you 10 different things. Take the things you believe in and continue. Always forward. I mean, always go forward. I think that's, in, in two cents, that's the lesson I, I would take. And just to double-click on that, because... I'm sure that there's, I mean, especially at the beginning, you know, it's like 90% of the days are very gray, right? And, and, and it's hard to pick yourself back up and keep going, you know, as a founder. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that can relate to that, that are tuning in. How do you keep going and believing yourself when things are gray and things are, you know, a little bit bumpy in front of you? I, I really think people underestimate the journey of, I mean, definitely opening a new business, but even starting a new startup, I mean, that's what I can relate to. The, the roller coaster, I mean, the highs are so high, but the lows can be very low. So you can one day be so happy and, you know, energetic and pumped up with the good news that you got, but just the day after, can be like a, a, a hundred mile a, a downhill. So you really need to try and maintain your inner self, not get too excited from the good news and try not to get too frustrated with the bad news. It's not 90%. I, th I would say it's probably 50-50. Definitely these days, uh, I was, I would say even luckily enough that I built my first company when the market was so tough, so I learned all the lessons the hard way. It was impossible to raise money, just impossible to raise money. And uh, even nowadays, it's uh, uh, more difficult than it was a year ago, I would say. But that's the way I believe companies should be built. I mean, I'm not a big fan of companies that raise tons of money and then they start with the massages in the office and two-hour business lunches and just invest, 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 and no revenues and no returns on investment. That's the companies I try to stay away from. There was one company that I loved and I thought had a great business model. But when I met the CEO, he was in this penthouse floor I saw the office, I told them, you're out of your mind, you're a startup. You, f you told me you flew to, uh, to meet a client last week. How did you flew? Business. I said, okay, if you are flying business, I'm flying out of it. And that company, by the way, wasn't successful. Uh, so always be humble or try to. I love it. So for the people that are listening, Ori, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I think the best way is um, email. Ori.levy, L-E-V-Y, at strico.io or LinkedIn. Easy, easy enough, Ori. Easy enough, Ori. Well, Ori, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much, Alejandro. I truly enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.